this morning as we take this up, for, for some of us who attend here regularly, and God willing, with great frequency, we won't always be exposed to something new. God help us when, when churches and, and pastors and preachers always feel like they have to come up with something new in order to please the people. You know, oftentimes what we enjoy in our homes aren't necessarily new dishes that are being made, but those favorite ones that are being served that we enjoy so much over and over again. Here today, some of what we're going to look at is a review. Yet, depending on our church circumstances, sometimes what is a review for others reveals things yet unseen and becomes new to some. So it may have both aspects today, but I pray that as we do this, which is to many of us significantly a review, that it would be a time that, that moves us to remember the grace and the salvation that is ours in Christ, that it would move us to reverence as humbled for the grace that we have received in the mercies of God, and it would move us to rejoice. So I'm, I'm praying that God would be pleased to do this. Even as we take up Acts chapter uh, 9, I want us to remember these words of our Savior as he was speaking, having just met with and just called Zacchaeus. In Luke chapter 19, verse 9 and 10, God's word says this, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. And then Jesus says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I don't want us to ever miss those words. He came to seek and to save the lost. Today we're going to most specifically look at how he sought and saved Saul. And it's important for us to get this because we live in a world in an age that's kind of turned these things upside down. It became popular for a season and hopefully has, has disappeared, but I doubt it. Where churches would be designed and church growth seminars would be hosted and it would be, all be organized in order that you could better equip your church to be seeker sensitive. You know, but the scriptures here are telling us Jesus is the one who seeks and saves the lost. The lost are themselves out there wandering and astray. But Jesus hunts them down, lays hold of them and delivers them. And we're going to see that and rejoice in that as we move through here. want to remind you also in this context, it is Saul who is being saved. We come to know him later under the name Paul as he writes the epistles. And it's an interesting side note in this. Saul, we know, was also the name of the first king of Israel. And the meaning of the name Saul meant desired. He was a desired one. And Saul, the original Saul, was the tallest and the handsomest of all the men in the kingdom. He was a desirable individual, and it seems that this was his birth name, Desired. The name he would later serve under was the name Paul, Saulus to Paulus, 
which went from desired to little. He's instead, it's almost as if it's, he, he, when he was smarter than his compatriots, advancing in class faster than them in Judaism, he thought, yeah, I'm to be desired. I should get the highest positions, the highest posts. I should be summa cum laude. I should be valedictorian. I should be the big boy. I am to be desired because I'm kind of smarter than everybody else. But then he understood what later? I'm of little account. We're all of little account. He even goes so far in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15 and 16 to say this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now generally speaking, whenever we quote from the scriptures, we could say what? It's trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. So when the author has gone so far as to introduce it with that sentence, then you better pay close attention. This is like, don't miss this. Don't let this slip by. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am foremost or of whom I am chief. That's what he saw himself as. Christ here came not to save a great man. Not to save a worthy man, but to save a sinner, and in his own estimation, to save a severe and unworthy sinner. In his personal estimation, the worst and least deserving of all. And so when we uh, look at this, we remember also the words of Jesus in Matthew 9, 13. It says this. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. That's the, it's something that cannot be missed. He came to save sinners. He seeks and saves the lost. Jesus saves them. It's not a small thing. If we have been saved... How did it come about? The simple answer is this. He sought us, sought us and he saved us. And we're going to see a little bit of that today. Introduction initially to Saul. I spoke about it briefly, but I'll remind you from the scriptures itself. In Acts 22, uh, verse 3, when he's later giving another testimony, he gives this little tidbit about himself. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia. And brought up in this city, this city being Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was who? In that day and age, he was the foremost teacher and scholar among the Pharisees in Judaism. You remember, when they were ready to put to death the early disciples, it was his own, the weight of his words swayed the whole council. To wait on it. This man carried tremendous weight. It was a unique privilege. And a unique individual. Who got to sit at the feet of Gamaliel. A Jew from another city. Who, who was marked out early in the synagogues. And relocated to Jerusalem. Relocated to be at the feet of Gamaliel. In the eyes of the world. This.
off a cliff. No, don't do it. But figuratively, you can choose not to believe in gravity. But what's going to happen? It's going to pull you down every time because whether you believe it or not, whether you understand it or not, it exists. Whether someone knows it or not, believes it or not, Jesus Christ is the way. He is the Lord. He is the truth. There is no other. It's heartbreaking that people think they can present their own ideas as valid. And even we'll go so far as, how do you say that? There's far more uh, Hindus in the world than Christians, far more Muslims than Christians. How can you guys say that you're the only ones who are right? The answer is, what we're saying is, uh, God said. And what we're saying is, God's right. Jesus said. And Jesus is right. And if anyone had any doubts, he said, I'm going to die. And three days later, I'm going to rise again. And what did he do? He died. And three days later, he rose again. Proving himself to be the son of God with power. Proving himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. The singular sacrifice accepted as satisfaction for our sin. Whoa, what a savior. The scriptures go on and remind us of this. And earlier in Acts chapter 4 verse 12. And we know these words. It says this. There is salvation in what? No one else. For there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. That's it. No other. People like the idea that there are many roads and many ways. There are not. Sometimes we even curiously develop as if even for the believer, there's many ways of salvation. No, there's many different circumstances in, the, in our lives that God is pleased to meet us in. But salvation always is accomplished the same way. God is pleased by the power of the gospel, in the working of the spirit, by the Savior to seek and save the lost. That's how it's done in every, every occasion. Noting this also, um, I could go on more and more. Uh, with, with Apollos, it says that um, he was taught accurately the things concerning Jesus in Acts 18. But they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I've got to understand it. So the way, the truth, the way includes truth. So is devotion all that's necessary or is doctrine also important? Yes. I mean, what are you devoted to if you don't know what it is? It all works together. And they taught him the way of God more accurately. In Acts 19.9, it says he was there ministering uh, Paul was, and it says, when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way. I, mean, I guess I'm bemoaning a little bit the loss of this concept, the way. Especially in an age in which everyone is trying to promote a plurality of ways. 
We need to once again assert that. And I'm not averse to the term Christian because Christ is the way. To follow Him is the way. But oh, that we would be very clear on this point moving forward. That there's no other hope. How is it more loving to someone to respect their opinions and their religious views of the afterlife when they're wrong? You know? When the colorblind person is calling red green, I'm sorry, uh, that's red. It looks green to me, but it's red. I want you to respect that to me it's green. Not going to happen. This is not green carpet, my friend. This is red carpet, and I'm not going to respect wrong I'm going to respect error. I'm going to treat you with respect. I'm going to say, kind sir, you be blind because it's red. You know, but there's, there's, how is it love to leave a person lingering in deception? Yeah, but if we tell them they're wrong, they may get mad at us. You don't tell them they're wrong. What? They will remain wrong. The only hope is that God might be pleased to call them out of their error as you declare to them the one truth and the one salvation that is in Christ. He is the way. 2 Peter 2, 2 says, And many will follow the sensuality of false teachers, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. The way is to be characterized by a faithful life, characterized by white, right doctrine, characterized by singularity and commitment. Oh, the way. Okay, so he was, at, Paul, or Saul, was after everyone who was committed to the way. What I also like is this, he understood it. Saul had, in the context of, of, of being there with Stephen, being there and arresting these individuals one after he knew of the way. He just didn't believe the way. He referred to them as the followers of the way because he knew their claims was Christ is the Messiah. Christ is the deliverer. Christ is the sacrifice. Christ alone is the hope of salvation. He heard it. He knew it. He rejected it. Did not accept it. In the least. We actually find in this passage that though he had heard it and probably heard it a number of times. The more he heard it instead of it softening his heart. It actually hardened his heart. He got angrier and angrier and more violent. It's like I've run out of people to mistreat in Jerusalem. Give me some papers to let me get out there and get some more. Uh, you know, this is not enough for me. I, I, I'm stirred up. What we see, we've seen not only the way, but we also see the enmity. And it's most evident here, but we must not miss that this is the condition of all mankind. And we must not misunderstand how God is pleased to save people. 
Sometimes we think, well, each time we give them the gospel, it's going to soften them a little bit. You know, they'll just get a little weaker and weaker, and eventually we'll get them. Is that how it works? No, no. what you got to do is you got to wait until they're feeling down. Wait until a crisis moment in their life. Then, then you can get them when they are in need. I mean, we think like that, don't we? God help us. Because that's not the way that it actually... Now, God sometimes does meet people at a moment of the recognition of need. But that recognition of need did not make them any closer than the other. And I want us to see that even sometimes we think this. Oh, funerals. At funerals, people are much more receptive because they're thinking about death and all of that. And so yeah, that, you know, that's where we're going to get more of them. It's like, well, anyone who's been around long enough can recognize, yeah, in a moment of sad, that's where you can get more emotional responses that have no abiding fruit, sadly. You get more people wanting to punch their ticket to heaven, but not who love Christ with their whole hearts and want to follow him with their lives. That doesn't come. Now, if God is pleased to save more people at funerals and other places, it's only because by the grace of God, the gospel is shared with frequency at funerals. And some people think, oh, camps. High school camp. There's nothing like a good campfire on the last night. Little acoustic guitar in the right songs gets everybody. I mean, a lot of people become saved, right? Campfire Christians. Yeah. But again, how long before they're back in the world? It's so sad, you know, and, and the point isn't to mock them, but sometimes we think these uh, circumstances create the optimal environment in which if we can get the right environment, then, then maybe they will respond or then hopefully God can. Really? Does God need the right environment, the right setup? Okay, now I can break through. Is that how, is that the way it works? No, I want us to see the enmity here, the enmity and estrangement. It tells us this in Acts chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. All right, so, so what you're hearing is that it's escalating. He approved of the killing of Stephen. It seems he himself was actively involved in arresting them, but he wanted more than just them arrested. He wanted them dead. He wanted them put down. And, and, and this, was, this was his condition. Everything about him, anyone following Jesus of Nazareth, anyone claiming that he's the way, Anyone worshiping him as Lord and Savior, I want to destroy them. Now, when you look at him, what do you think? Prime candidate for conversion. He's ready. You know, he's sensitive. Uh, 
I mean, it doesn't seem that way. Does God need all that? You know, and you, I am in as much in danger of you of thinking that at times. Because we're, we're human and, and we think of how we convince people and how we influence people. We don't realize it's not like that. It's like this person was blind and now Jesus tells the blind Bartimaeus, he says, what would you have me do that I would see? All right, regain your sight. And now what happens? He sees. You know, and it's just powerful and profound. And he's able to do that. Well, we don't have that power. So we have to slowly influence people and, and woo them and, and, and soften them up. And if we just sing one more verse of this closing hymn so that we can get a few more people to walk. We've all been there, but that's not how it works. Listen, still breathing murderous threats. He wanted to bring people bound. I want to remind you of this, and it can never be emphasized enough. Romans chapter 3, verse 9 and following, are, reveals to us the nature of the condition of men. All men. Jews and Gentiles, everything has been imprisoned under the word. And it says this, as it is written, verse 10, there is none who is righteous, no, not one. So when Jesus says, I did not call, come to call the righteous to repentance, well, that's pretty easy, because how many righteous are there? None. But how many are there who are righteous in their own eyes? Most people think if they're a little bit on the, on the side of things, 51% good, 49% bad, their actions and feelings interaction, then I'm basically good. You even crazy, basically good. No, 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 no. None is righteous. And, it, and, and in case you didn't get it, because our minds are saying, well, can you really say none? I mean, what about politicians? <laughs> no, not one. Just in case you were trying to come up with an exception. Now, some of you are getting ready to say, I have an exception. All right. If your exception's Jesus, then you're right. He alone is that exception. To all of the compromise and sentiment. But known is righteous. No, not one. There is what? None who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all gone astray. They've all become worthless. Okay, that's... Uh... All right, so if none understand, here's what to do. Let me explain it to them more clearly. You explain it to them more clearly, and, and what? They don't understand. Because you, you can't make them understand. And they don't seek after God. Now, sometimes we're confused because Jesus says in John 6, um, no one comes unless the Father draws him. And so we're off confused because we think, well, I remember a time when I, when I was kind of seeking. I began to have a little bit more interest in the scriptures, a little bit more interest in, in hearing the word of God. I remember a time where I was seeking. Listen to me. 
no one seeks after God. Are you going to believe God's word? Or are you going to believe your experience? But I think I was seeking. Were you seeking or was he drawing you? Oh, he was drawing you inwardly, welling up a conviction of sin, a hopelessness of this life, a desire for more, an increasing interest in the word. Yeah, he was drawing you. No one seeks after him. He was still breathing murderous threats. In Acts 22, he says this, verse 4 and 5. I persecuted this way to the death. I mean, I just think. Binding and delivering to prison both men and women. I, I was absolutely out to destroy them. Now you think of this. He has declared himself the absolute enemy of Jesus Christ and all who belong to him. Now I think of it from a human perspective because that's easy for me being a human. Someone's doing that to my people, to my loved ones. What am I going to do? Imagine your actual family and people that you love being beaten and imprisoned and killed by somebody. What is your first thought? I want to adopt them. You know, I want to invite them to Christmas with the family. Is that what you're thinking? Or are you thinking what? I want to kill this person. I don't want to ever see them again. I don't want them anywhere near me. Anywhere near someone in my family. Done. But that's not what happened here. Because what we've got to understand is. The enmity that Paul was manifesting. Was clear. Obvious. And visible. But that same enmity. Is in the heart. Of all men. And sometimes we don't see it. Because remember the heart's deceitful above all things. And desperately wicked who can know it. And so we fool ourselves. And we deceive ourselves. And we don't understand it. Romans 8. Verse 7 and 8. Says these words. Listen closely. Romans 8, 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh. Or the carnal mind. The person who is still not alive by the Spirit of God. The natural man. What does it say about the natural man whose mind is set on the flesh? The mind that is set on the flesh, those whose mind is set on the flesh, is hostile to God. The King James there says, is at enmity with God. It does not Submit to God. Indeed, it cannot. That's strong language, isn't it? So every one of us were not righteous. Not a one of us sought after God. Not a one of us understood. Indeed, we were all hostile in our minds. Even those who were by Jewish standards, devoted to and zealous to God, were still themselves enemies to the Son of God, to the way of God, to the truth of God, to the life 
of God. And we've got to understand that sort of enmity is there. Um, it, it tells us this, and this is amazing. In Galatians 1, after having spoken of his former life in Judaism and how he was uh, violently persecuted the church of God violently in verse 13 to destroy it, he says this in verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal himself to me. In order that I might preach to the gospel. I did not immediately consult with anyone. This is what happened. He was an enemy. He was opposing. And then what happened? Jesus met him. God revealed the truth of his son to him. And at that point what? What happened? Paul sitting there on the road to Damascus. Having fallen to the ground says what? All right, Jesus, if I follow you, what are you going to give me? Is that what happened? No. He's like, well, you know, I still don't know if I believe here. No, everything changed when God was pleased to reveal his son. All that he had been fighting. There's, there's no way Jesus is risen from the dead. There's no way he's ascended to the right hand of the father. This is not even a possibility. And then what happens? Jesus appears to him. <laughs> and suddenly all of his doubts are what? Gone. And he realized, I was wrong. I was utterly wrong. Jesus is risen from the dead. Christ came to save sinners. It says in verse um, 1 Timothy 1 verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason as the foremost that Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I'm a living example of those who were to believe in him. And sometimes we, uh, we don't get the strength of it and I, and I wish that we would. Uh, let, let's look at a, a a verse like Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. It still says this. Seeing the enmity and, and, and the, the, how that is in a moment utterly changed. It says this. Um, Romans 5 verse 8 and following. But God shows his love for us. In that while we were sinners. Christ died for us. What was our condition when he died for us? Sinners. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood. Let's not miss this. The sinners for whom he died are what? Justified by his blood. His death accomplishes justification. These sinners have been purchased. They have been redeemed. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Those that he has given himself for died for while they were sinners. They're justified. They're saved from the wrath of God. Romans 5.10 says this. For while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God. I mean, that, I don't want you to miss this. This is being stated here uh, in Romans as that book that's written to the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians to give wonderfully clear instruction. And this is what we are all to understand. We were enemies. And while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. So it's not like, well, yeah, we had been enemies, but then we had been trying to make things right. No. Well, we had been enemies, but you know, I, I'd been kind of trying to make peace with God, trying to make peace with my fellow man. I, I was making some progress and uh, no, no, no. The, your, your condition was this, utter enemies. And while you were utter enemies, he did what? He reconciled you to God. And so all the peace that we have with God is through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Not on any account of ourselves, on any account of our own. And, and it's important that we don't miss that out. I love the way that it's uh, stated in uh, 2 Corinthians also. Therefore, if anyone, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, for those taking notes. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. All this is from God. <laughs> what were you? An enemy. But now you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. How did that happen? All of this is from God. Who what? Through Christ reconciled us to himself. And gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. All of this is from God. We've got to start to get that. When we talk about salvation. Salvation is all of God. All of grace. All in Christ. Our contribution was what? Were we righteous? Did we understand? Did we seek? Did we love? We were at enmity, we were hostile, unresponsive, uninterested. Ephesians, we know well, puts it in an even stronger picture than enmity, which is very strong in itself. It says this in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he did what? Made us alive in Christ Jesus. We were, and then he what? So we weren't dead, and then we somehow made ourselves partly dead. Or partly alive, right? What was the condition? And then, by his grace and mercy, alive. Blind, but by his grace and mercy, we see. Unrighteous, but now in Christ, righteous. Oh, the grace 
uh, when, we, when we understand this. And it's interesting to note this. If we go back a little bit. Previously in Acts, coming up to this passage, the gospel has gone to others. Remember, the gospel went out to, to many in Jerusalem, and then it went to Samaria. Then it went to this Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian eunuch was what? He wasn't traveling somewhere making murderous threats. He was traveling somewhere reading the word of God. But he still had a very serious problem. He was asked by, by Philip this simple question. Do you understand what you're reading? What is it? Who's it talking about? Is it talking about him or someone else? I, I, I don't understand it. We're darkened in our understanding until he sheds that light upon us. Oh, and, and that's, the, that's the remarkable uh, uh, revelation of this when, we, when we, we, we move from the enmity really to the light. And listen to what it says this. Um, remember, as, as I was on my way to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. In Acts 26, we need to...